0: Hi, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. There's a staple of American literature that's something like stories we tell ourselves and what it takes to believe them. At best, we need these stories because they're necessary for survival. At worst, we're too stubborn or too stupid to hear any other version of a story. We've got two interviews today that get at that theme in some really interesting ways. In a bit, we'll hear from Britt Bennett about her novel The Vanishing Half. It's about two black twin sisters, one of whom decides to leave their hometown and live her life as a white person. The book isn't judgy about that decision, but it does go into the real costs of self-mythologizing. But first, former NPR host Noel King talks with writer Danielle Evans about her short story collection, The Office of Historical Corrections. And in the interview, Evans talks about being inspired by an overheard conversation on the subway where everyone was wrong. Not like wrong minded or had bad opinions, but just like actually, factually, Googleably incorrect. And sure, that's frustrating and bad, but would a world where we could fix that be any better? Danielle
1: Evans is a fiction writer who tries to keep off of the news. She's way more interested in the past. But some of the stories in her new collection, The Office of Historical Corrections, seem like they're taken directly from this summer's headlines when the U.S. was confronting its history. She
2: told me that her main impulse is to understand the truth. What kind of story are we telling about the country? What have we chosen to believe? And what's the cost or danger or change possible in telling some other version of the story.
1: The Office of Historical Corrections is both the title of the book and it's a novella that concludes the book. Um, It's a really grabby idea, the Office of Historical Corrections, which you describe as a kind of bureaucracy, a government bureaucracy, uh, a fictional one, but explain what it is.
2: Yeah, it's an agency that is kind of real-time fact-checking. So, in theory, and in, in the book, it sort of starts as this grand idea and then is a kind of small underfunded government office as as many things go. <laughs> but in theory, it's supposed to be a kind of public works project for historians so that people are in public and having conversations with the public and also correcting kind of formal and informal signage and landmarks and markers of historical events and are supposed to be there to sort of engage people in a real-time fact-checking process, which, of course, is both more controversial and less powerful at times than the Institute hopes. But the idea is that it's a sort of agency created to reckon with our our crisis of information and our our crisis of truth. (laughs) This
1: fictional office is very reminiscent of debates we're having over Confederate statues and whether they should stay up and whether if they do stay up there should be a plaque near them explaining what the truth of them is was there a particular incident that sparked the the idea for this story the idea that we might have a national office dedicated to telling the truth about america
2: no you know i like maybe a decade ago i started telling a joke because i think i was on the on metro one morning and i heard some people I don't remember what they were talking about. I think it was like the Haitian revolution, but they were having such a factually devoid conversation. Right? They were so wrong about whatever they were saying that I was just like, I got off the train. I don't remember who I was talking to, but I was like, you know, I would pay, I would pay like 10 extra tax dollars a year to form an agency just to like correct people in public. <laughs> because, like this is basic accessible information. Like they could Google this. Um The idea stuck with me. And I, I also thought about the ways in which that could be terrifying, right? And so I think now we're in this moment where this book is coming out and some of the sort of things that have happened feel strangely topical. Um, but there's also this sort of larger question of, you know, we have the federal government now holding conferences about patriotic education and it's almost like the sort of sinister, bizarre world version of the agency I created. And so I do think some of those questions about like, but when you build something who can use it? And, and is an agency as good as like the best person in it who believes in what it's supposed to be doing? Or is an agency only as good as like the worst person who wants to use it for harm? And that's part of the tension at the heart of the story, I hope. In one story, a careless young white woman
1: named Claire wears a bikini with a Confederate flag design. It's not a statement, she's just not thinking. But a picture of her in the bikini goes viral, and it hurts a college classmate. Claire doesn't apologize. Instead, she doubles down. She should be a hateable character, but she's not. I asked Evans about the debate over whether authors can write authentic characters who are of a different race than them.
2: You have to write what you understand. And I think most Black people are very equipped to write about whiteness in this country because most of us have spent our lives watching it and learning it. And we've certainly been in that room where where we are the minority and where we hear people um, kind of talk amongst themselves, whereas I think if you don't have a window to how a group talks amongst itself, it's hard to do the actual work of fiction, which is to create layers. And so, you know, one of the things I wanted with that character is that, you know, she does do kind of awful, hurtful things. She also has a narrative of herself that makes sense to her, and so I wanted to think about the intersection of of this sort of version of herself. Where she isn't, in her own mind, the villain of the story, and yet she is actively, like, harming people throughout the story, because that for me is sort of the question of privilege, right? It's the intersection of when does your own self-narrative or your own failure to grow belong to you as a narrative, and when is it someone else's story just by virtue of the, the even passive power that you have over them? And so in order to ask that question, she couldn't be somebody that people would immediately kind of avert their eyes from or immediately disassociate from because I wanted there to be that grappling with the sort of, if you wanted to forgive her, where's the point where you shouldn't have? That, that is
1: really interesting. There are a lot of lost moms in this collection of stories, moms who are lost to cancer or other illnesses, moms who vanish. Uh,
2: that stood out to me a lot. Am I reading too much into it? Um, no, I, I think often writing a book, the process of writing a book is sort of finding out what book you wrote after the fact. And so ah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't set out to write a book about my mother dying, but I think in, in some ways I, I wrote a book about my mother dying and I didn't know it until I'd done it. I didn't know your mom had passed. I'm sorry. Yeah. She died in um 2017.
1: Does writing help with grief or is that too simplistic?
2: You know, I don't know that anything helps with grief, but I do think that what I realized in, in retrospect is there's a kind of structural way that grief came into the stories, and there's also a kind of thematic way that grief came into the stories. And I think structurally, the logic of grief, which is also kind of the logic of crisis, and so I think it was I was responding both to personal grief and a sense of national crisis, is often divergent from our kind of classic narrative arc, right? That sometimes in a story everything follows the same path and and the emotional climax of the story is the same place as the plot climax. And sometimes it's not, and often those are stories about things we can't control, right? where there's some event or weight or emotional tension at the core of the story, and the whole plot is all the things someone does to kind of evade what actually matters or ignore what actually matters or distract from what actually matters. That's how grief feels, and so it comes to the story in the moments where time compresses and and you can sort of feel that shift or that weight underneath a story that's ostensibly about something else.
1: That was Danielle Evans. Her new collection is the Office of Historical Corrections.
0: So Britt Bennett starts her book The Vanishing Half, which deals with racism and identity, in 1968. It just so happened to come out in 2020, at the height of the George Floyd protests. Now, calling a book about racism in America timely is kind of like calling water wet. But in this interview with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly, Bennett talks about writing how different characters respond to images of unrest and how empathy changes that reaction. For protesters in cities across the country, the past is the present. Racism, brutality, and inequality still infect America, 400 years after the first enslaved Africans were brought here. And it is questions about the past and how it informs the present that Brit Bennett takes on in her new novel, The Vanishing Half. Our co-host, Mary Louise Kelly, spoke with her about it. The book is about twin sisters,
3: identical twins, African-American Skin so light that while one sister lives as a black woman, the other passes as white. Both sisters are haunted by personal and collective traumas of the past, and whether it is possible to erase that past in the name of a better future. Britt Bennett, welcome.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: Glad to have you with us. And if I may just start with the current moment... You, as a writer who has thought deeply about race in this country, I have to ask what's on your mind as you look at this country today in 2020.
4: Yeah, it's it's been a very surreal week to be releasing this book in particular. It begins in 1968 during this period of uh, civil unrest. And I think 1968 is a year that's on everybody's mind right now because of the protests happening um, and I think also the book is concerned in race and how we form racial identities and racial injustice. And that's obviously something that's resonating with people right now, too.
3: Yeah, I, there was a, a page that I was underlining and starring. This is page 158, because there is a, a scene where it's set in the summer of 1968. And one of your characters is watching the news and describes uh, sitting on the arm of a chair and watching cities across the country lit up in flames and neighborhoods being destroyed. And I I wrote, wow, under it, just thinking it's, it's, you could have written that about a novel set in 2020. And that feels both, you know, like so much has changed, but not clearly, way too much has not changed. Exactly.
4: And I think that's also a moment where you see characters reacting to these images so differently based on their racial background and where they come from and whether they understand and empathize with the pain and the anger or whether they don't. And I think that that's also something that you're seeing around as everybody is trying to process this moment.
3: All right. So to the where they come from point, let's dive into the novel. And I want you to tell us about Mallard, Louisiana. This is the town where your characters, the twins, Stella and Desiree, grow up, which is, it's a fictional town, right?
4: Yeah, I, I, Got the idea for the book from a conversation I had with my mother, who told me very offhandedly one day about a town she remembered from her Louisiana childhood, where everyone sort of intermarried so that their children would get lighter with each generation. So I wanted to kind of explore the idea of a place like this, and I was able to draw on some research from similar Creole communities that were similarly insular and organized around people having light skin and kind of aspiring to have light skin in different generations. Hmm.
3: So I've heard you use the term a racial third space talking about this town. Explain.
4: Yeah. So I found it really interesting, the idea that this is a Black community that feels that they are separate from darker skinned Black people. And at the same time, they know that they are not treated in the way that white people are treated. So what does it mean to kind of exist in that third space, particularly in that time and place, which is a rural Louisiana town During the age of Jim Crow, it was a binary. There were white spaces and there were colored spaces. So what does it mean to not exist in either and to exist in that liminal place?
3: Hmm. The twins are inseparable as girls. And then one of them decides to pass as white to take a job that was only open to a white woman. Her twin, Desiree, is left behind and lives her life as a black woman. Why was that something that you wanted to explore?
4: Well, I think I was interested in this book of the idea of race as something that is both fictional and also something that is real, so I think when we talk about race being a social construct, yeah, the idea that these twins are identical and one essentially becomes white because she declares herself to be white, and one is black because she does not do that. there is an aspect of that that reveals how flimsy you know those categories are if you can transgress them through performance. But at the same time, these decisions that they make and how they identify themselves materially affect their lives, whether it's the jobs that they have or who they marry or what happens to their kids and the opportunities their kids are afforded. It really affects so much of their material lives, even though the idea of race and these categories are so flimsy in and of themselves.
3: So flimsy, and yet Stella, the one who, who lives her life as a white woman, finds she cannot escape her identity. She can't escape her past. It keeps tracking her down, which seems to suggest it's, you know, it's like Faulkner wrote, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. Um, that, that's a very different argument, that, that race is a, is a more fixed thing.
4: I mean, I think it's both and it's all of them. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to punt on this question, but I think that it really is all of those things. So for Stella, she's constantly performing and that performance is also constantly changing. So I think that that was one of the things I found interesting about setting the book when I did, um, which is later than a lot of stories about passing are set historically, to set it within the civil rights movement and that post-civil rights movement era, Stella is learning how to perform whiteness at a time in which whiteness itself is also changing. And the scripts that she has learned within her Jim Crow upbringing in Louisiana are not applicable to when she becomes this sort of wealthy white woman in California. And she has to perform whiteness in a different way, um, in a way that is often unacceptable to the other white people around her.
3: Hmm. There have been quite a few novels written about passing. And there's often this big reveal at the end, the person who was trying to pass for white, it turns out everybody learns they're not who they said they were. You, in this book, seem less focused on that and more focused on, you know, what if a person who's passing for white is never found out? What does that look like? How does that play out?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of the earlier narratives of passing that I was exposed to, one was the movie Imitation of Life, which is, you know, adapted from an earlier book. And, you know, in that movie, there's like that big climatic scene at the end where the white passing character flings her body on the casket of her dark skinned mother who's just died. And she's sort of punished by the fact that her long suffering mother has died without her. And she realizes that, you know, she was a terrible daughter for disowning her mother. So I think a lot of these stories of passing are often these moralizing stories. To me, it was not interesting to think, like, is it good or bad to pass? I was really more interested in the implications of passing on this woman's life than in the idea of punishing her for deciding to pass.
3: Huh. Oh, it, it would be awfully easy to pass judgment on Stella, the, the twin who decides to, to pass and live life as a white woman and condemn her as being less authentic than, than her twin. Um, you didn't land that way, it didn't seem like. You didn't pass that judgment.
4: No, I mean, I I don't think I ever really want to moralize in fiction. I just find that boring as a writer. So yeah, I was really thinking about the idea of passing as both an act of self-creation and also an act of self-destruction. I think there's something so deeply American of the idea that you can be who you want to be. You can create yourself. You can build yourself. Sort of Gatsby, you know, that kind of ideology of being able to reinvent yourself in whatever way that you choose. But at the same time, you know, Stella loses a great deal by doing this. She loses her connection to her past and her family, her community. Um, She's a woman who is very alone in this new world that she's chosen
3: to join. That's Britt Bennett talking about her new novel, The Vanishing Half. Britt Bennett, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Kelly Wessinger and edited by Megan Sullivan and Taylor Burney. Petra Mayer is our founding editor. The show elements this week were produced and edited by Sarah Handel, Matt Ozuk, Rina Advani, Vince Pearson, Melissa Gray, Jan Stewart, Jolie Myers, Elena Burnett, Noah Caldwell, and Christopher Intagli. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.